0: Are you ready for this? Ready. So let me welcome back to this episode of the device talks weekly podcast. Happy early Thanksgiving to all of you. Hope you're looking forward to a safe and happy holiday next week. We have a Thanksgiving meal sized podcast for you today. In addition to our great two-minute detox contributions by Explorer Surgical and Delve, I have not two, but three interviews for you this week. We'll be speaking with Mark Leahy, he's the president of MDMA. Mark's going to try to uh, give us a little insight on what's going on on the national scale election wise and what that means for MedTech. Then I will speak with Spencer Stiles. Spencer is the head of orthopedics at Stryker. Stryker has been making a lot of news lately, most recently with the acquisition of Wright Medical. We'll learn about that. And also some uh, some interesting insights on how Stryker is selling the Mako. And our third course will be an interview with Art Collins. Art is the former chairman and CEO of Medtronic. We'll talk with Art about his career in Medtech, about his uh, stint at Medtronic, what he thinks of his time there, and uh, some thoughts on leadership both at a startup, a large company and on a national political scale. Finally we'll talk with art about his work with Explorer surgical so I know you'll enjoy that conversation before we get into all of that we have a great a great appetizer one in the form of Chris Newmarker, my podcast partner and executive editor of Life Sciences at Mastervi Chris Newmarker how are you sir?
1: Good to be here. I mean that's quite a menu you just just mentioned. I mean did... I cooked all
0: day, Chris.
1: Does anything have bacon with it cuz I mean anything you add bacon to. I mean even like maple donuts, maple donut with a bacon on it. I mean
0: No bacon, but no gluten. So it's
1: gluten free. Gluten free. Well, yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, good, good not to load up on too many carbs. But uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, I, yeah, it's it's great that we've uh, you know got uh, you know somebody uh, you know talking about what the election will mean for for the industry. Of course, I mean that, that's along with the pandemic top of mind for for many people. It's definitely. Uh, Interesting times right now.
0: Absolutely, I think we we like to think we know where things are going, but every time I think that, I don't think that anymore. So it'll be one that we'll certainly keep following up on. Chris, let's talk about the Big 100.
1: Yeah, the Big 100. This is uh, our uh, annual uh, roundup of information about the 100 largest medical device companies in the world. Uh, our uh, senior editor Daniel Kirsch uh, it does a lot of the data compilation. We get this this thing done, and uh, my gosh, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a really, really good, good reference for uh, many people in the industry. And uh, we actually just got the beast put to bed today, you know, but you can already, uh, you know, look at the data on uh, medical design, outsourcing and massdevice.com. Just look up the our article about the 20 largest medical device companies in the world. And we sign up for a newsletter. You can download the spreadsheet. So and check out not just revenue, but R&D spend, employee numbers, you know, all kinds of good stuff.
0: That's very cool. I didn't know that. You can get the spreadsheet. Yeah, Tom, you should get the spreadsheet, man. Well, I've been hearing you guys talk about it, but I've never asked about the spreadsheet. So, by all means, folks, it's free data. You got to love that, right? Chris has been busting his hump on this. I'm going to take a long nap soon. <laughs> well, good work by you and Nancy and Danielle. It's a uh, it's a great service. I think to the med tech industry, and I know it's it's a valuable contribution. So so thanks for the time on that, and thanks for the the time that you're about to spend giving us. This week's Newmarkers Newsmakers.
1: Newmarkers Newsmakers. Here we go.
0: So, all right, Chris, I'm sorry. I just realized that in preparation of that huge Thanksgiving like meal of all the, the keynotes, I did not have time to make a side of Newmarkers Newmakers sound. So we'll be Tom.
2: Starting.
0: I know. I went to the store. They're all out of sound. I'll go next week. I'll get it. You know how it is
1: horns dogs i don't know yeah we gotta get something going on turkeys gobble gobbles maybe i don't
0: know ready one two three gobble gobble wow (laughs) elevate the gobble chris (laughs) newmar you came to play all right
1: i grew up in ohio man like you know like we take our farm animal sounds seriously (laughs) number five number five okay number five on the list um actually this is very um very serious, which is that uh, you know we've got this uh, major wave of uh, COVID nineteen like hitting the country as well as the world now, and um, you know, and and you know, it's it's basically there was a report out of uh, UBS, you know, where analysts are saying like, yeah, this is going to pull back uh, medical procedures for the uh, rest of the year in the U.S. Uh, so uh, you know, pretty much kind of bad news for the the medical device industry. I mean, we had a really tough second quarter as procedures were curtailed. There there was a, there was a rebound going on in the, in the third quarter. Uh, it looks like now it's going to be slowing down again for, for the rest of the year. I mean, I guess one one comforting thing is that the UBS analysts thought that, you know, it wasn't going to be, you know, as as uh, as widespread as we saw early this year. But, you know, still, you know, it's going to be, uh, you know, just, just beside the, uh, you know, tragic uh, toll in, you know, human life that we're, you know, probably going to see in this country, uh, you know, in, in the next uh, not next month or two. Uh, you know, the uh, you know it, it's also going to for for the industry we cover here. It's uh, you know going to be uh, affecting revenues.
0: I feel for the for the healthcare workers who are uh, who are out there dealing with this once again. So. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, this one passes more quickly than, than the last, but uh, all right. All right. Well, that is a uh, very sad but but suitable number five. What is number four on the New Markets Newsmakers list, Chris?
1: Yeah, so number four on our list uh, actually uh, came about while I was uh, doing research about the uh, 20 largest medical device companies in the world. And I uh, looked up, uh, you know, back in Dickinson's most uh, recent uh, earnings report and uh, actually buried deep inside the report uh, was uh, was a number, uh, $244 million. And that's, you know, what they've set aside to cover future uh, product remediation costs. And that $244 million includes, you know, what they're doing to fix their uh, problematic uh, Alaris infusion pumps. And right right now, those pumps, there's a shipping hold. On, there's been a shipping hold on those pumps since uh, early this year. And uh, they, they need to submit like a very comprehensive 510K to FDA uh, with, with all the software fixes. They need to do those pumps after a... You know, a major recall that they had with them. Um, so at this point, uh, CEO Tom Pollen over at uh, BD says you know they're looking at late Q2, early Q3 of their uh, fiscal year to get that 510k in. So that should be around spring 2021. But in the meantime, you know they're only shipping out those pumps unless there's a immediate medical need. And you know we we continue to you know cover reports of problems around those pumps at uh, at Mass Device. So just kind of like. Good, good illustration of just like what you know, what a
0: big problem you know the, those pumps have been for BD. Oh, interesting story. And uh, now with the, the conversation of the FDA, I think it's appropriate that we uh, we roll out our, our first interview. We'll talk with uh, Mark Leahy, the president of MDMA, about uh, where we are on the national election scene as it pertains to medtech. Let's listen. Hey folks, before we get into this conversation with Mark Leahy, the president of MDMA, I wanted to share our latest two-minute detox conversation with Dave Francino, president of Delve. In this bit, Dave and I talked about innovation, how Delve, a great product design firm, identifies it,
3: approaches it, and really fleshes it out. So let's hear from Dave Francino the president of Delve. We believe innovation is the intersection between products that are feasible, desirable, and viable. We we sometimes don't think of medical devices as being desirable, but the reality is all products exist in a competitive landscape. You might be competing against different therapies, different opportunities, but you're also competing uh, for clinical staff's time and attention and uh, what their priorities are. So making the products that you're working on desirable and that they solve a need, fit a purpose, making them feasible and that they're technologically capable and viable, that they can sustain a business is really where where innovation occurs. And we do that through a number of kind of tenets, including multidisciplinary teams using multidimensional people. That's a phrase we use a lot, but we really believe best innovation comes from blending different disciplines together in teams that are focused with their own areas of expertise, be it strategy, research, engineering, design, as I talked about further, but are are working towards a common goal. We really believe blending teams of multidisciplinary people is where the best of innovation comes from. We have a very user-centered approach to design, and even in instances we're working with very sophisticated technologies, it's really important to build on a foundation of insights and understanding what users are trying to accomplish. What are their pain points? That's not just the The patient, but the clinical staff, the biomedical engineers, the regulatory individuals, the center of each one of those things is a user and what their needs are. Philosophically, we try to ask why and try to to frame the big picture at Delve and then use creativity, but balance that really with technical rigor so we can take risks within our organization and make sure we've got the right approach. Finally, we really want to use prototyping to be able to tell stories with our products, iterate. And if we're going to fail, try to fail early so we can pivot into the right approach. Those are some of the techniques that we found that really help deliver success on innovation.
0: Thanks for listening to this segment of the Two Minute Detox. Now let's hear from Mark Leahy of MDMA. Mark Leahy, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thanks, Tom. It's great to be with
0: you. It's an interesting time to talk to you. Uh, as I, I said off uh, off mic, I, I reached out to you last week thinking we could get some clarity, and then things just seem to get more more confused. So I, I think this is a good opportunity just to, to touch base. I don't expect you to have definitive answers on frankly anything, but I'd like to just get a sense of your sense of where we're at. Uh, the presidential election, has the voters have decided. There's been a president-elect Selected. We all know the scenario. How are you, as an industry organization, sort of handling this rather unusual situation where we don't know exactly what will happen on January twentieth, or perhaps you're, perhaps you do.
4: No, I, uh, thanks for that, Tom. Obviously, you know this has been a hard-fought election and a lot of passion on both sides, um, and I think both sides can, you know probably hang their hat on, um, you know, some of the results. Obviously, uh, President Biden positioned to win 300 electoral votes, 306, the same as as Trump uh, garnered in, in 2016. So obviously Democrats are happy about that. And then if you look to the Senate race, obviously we have the Two runoffs in Georgia that could impact the um, balance of power, but I think Republicans perform better than than most anticipated. And interestingly, in the House, you saw um, most prognostications were for the Democrats to maybe pick up ten seats, and it looks like, in fact, Republicans are poised to pick up about ten seats. and And that's important, not because it's going to shift the balance of power, um, but the margin in which Speaker Pelosi has to operate, um, you know, amplifies the voice of the more moderate faction. So. Uh, obviously, there's still a lot of noise, a lot of passion, but we are confident that there'll be a peaceful transition uh, and that, uh, you know, when the next Congress begins, uh, we will continue working in a bipartisan manner, as we always have with Republicans, and Democrats, to advance policies that promote patient care and innovation.
0: Well, let's drill down on that on the bipartisan position. I know that you are we are a bipartisan industry. We're a bipartisan. You're a bipartisan organization. But in general, does do do you have an easier job doing your easier time doing your job when one party is in power versus the other?
4: Yeah, you know, I actually think historically, I do think that when you have divided government, uh, that is the opportunity for both sides to come together and and move uh, bills forward. Again, you've seen that with every medical device user fee reauthorization, for example. Uh, you know, that's usually something that garners over 400 vo- votes in the House and 90 votes in the Senate. You know, the medical device tax obviously was implemented with a single party controlling um Uh, Washington. Uh, Ultimately, it was, um, you know, we built bipartisan support and had that repealed um, with another party in single control. But now I I do think that the country is probably tired of lurching back and forth. And so I think our hope here is that we uh, go have an opportunity here to, again, work on issues of critical importance to promote patient care, promote innovation, and get us through this public health emergency.
0: So, how are you approaching the Again, uncertainty, quote unquote, over who will be president on January twentieth. Uh, are you moving forward in in a typical fashion, where you're reaching out to the the president elects side, or are you holding back and, and waiting to see how what exactly happens?
4: No, you know, for both the House, the Senate, and the and the White House. You know, We uh, continue to have conversations with, with again, new members coming in, and, and obviously the transition team is, is busy, but we've had some outreach there, just um, letting them know that we want to uh, collaborate, work with them to, uh, again, advance policies of mutual interest. Obviously, the role that medical technology, diagnostics, testing, remote monitoring, others that have played on the front lines of COVID, I think are important. That's obviously going to be a priority number one for uh, the new administration. So we want to, we have let them know that we are ready, willing, and able to, to work with them. Uh, and and just like with some of the new members of Congress who were recently elected, again, the, there are a lot of challenges here with staffing up and others, and and but we just want to, you know, m- many of these folks we have, we've built a relationship with, and for some of the new ones, just let them know who we are and our interest in working together.
0: Does President-elect Biden come with any sort of uh, label as being a friend of industry or neutral to the med tech industry. I mean he was obviously vice president when a, when ACA was adopted it came with the tax but you know I don't think that was necessarily aimed at an industry per se just as a more of a solution. but how is he viewed by by the medtech industry?
4: You know, I, I think the vice president has a long history working in Washington uh, on critical issues um, uh, that are impacting, you know, a variety of Americans. You know, I think his experience probably with his son, Beau, and, you know, battling cancer as he did, and then, you know, really dedicating kind of the, the last chapter prior to running for president to the cancer moonshot um, and investment in, in research and development. I think he, he probably more uniquely than others appreciates the contributions that the life science industry can play. And so... I think that gives us, you know, a sense that you know he'll be a, a he understands the value of our industry from a patient care perspective. I think um, growing uh, awareness from both sides of the aisle up in Capitol Hill of the economic impact that our industry has, since it's primarily U.S. based, and these are you know high paying, high tech U.S. based manufacturing jobs. These are exactly the types of jobs that more members of Congress want here, and so. Yeah you know, for those reasons I think we uh we're confident that we can have a productive uh relationship working together across the aisle not just again with the with the White House but with Speaker Pelosi and and Leader McConnell or in, in the likelihood that uh, one or both of those uh, Georgia seats um, stay in the Republican ledger. Uh
0: two more questions. So obviously the FDA is uh is probably the most important agency in 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 many of our listeners' eyes or ears. How do you view how do you see leadership there playing out? Assuming once again we go forward with uh, with President-elect Biden being president on January twentieth.
4: Sure. Well, I, you know, obviously from what reports are, I think HHS Secretary, FDA Commissioner, CMS Administrator, these will be some of the first uh, positions that I expect President-elect Biden to move forward on. These obviously because of the of COVID, the public health emergency. You know, some of those candidates may actually, and again, one would hope that they uh, the selections there are folks who would work across the aisle. And I can't imagine, again, you're hearing from a lot of Republicans that uh, as long as, you know, the, the nominees are kind of within the mainstream of, of traditional Democratic you know, philosophies, that they will not obstruct and they will let uh, uh, Biden kind of formulate his cabinet and, and senior officials. So, you know, with that as kind of the, the lens we're looking through, um, again, I remain confident that, uh, you know, we'll have a productive working relationship with the, the incoming FDA commissioner. I think, you know, Dr. Schoen obviously has a tremendous amount of experience uh, at running CDRH over the last 14 plus years. And I suspect that whoever comes in should take the mantra: if it's not broke, no need to fix it. And so, uh, again, I think what Dr. Shurn and his team have done for on the EUAs for testing, for additional capacity for other critical medical supplies been extraordinary uh, you know i can tell you that the collaboration interaction our members have had with fda during this these challenging times has been nothing short of extraordinary and again we would certainly expect that whoever came in as the commissioner would not disrupt that that collaboration would hopefully only work to enhance and accelerate it and then as we look ahead obviously God willing, we get this uh, public health emergency in the rearview mirror, 2021, with the with the progress in the vaccines and, and broader scaling and deployment. Then, obviously, uh, we'll be kind of ripening towards the Meduffa five reauthorization negotiations with FDA. And I think you know there are a lot of lessons learned here from efficiency, collaboration through this public health emergency. That I think it'd be worthwhile to see if we can memorialize those moving forward.
0: So, going last question, going into 2021, what is your what are your top two priorities? Is Meduffa one of them?
4: You know, that certainly is one that will kind of extend, though, I'd say there's three, obviously, just ongoing active engagement to battle the the pandemic, uh, making sure, again, critical medical supplies are available and being deployed and investments made there. The second I'd say is, you know, we've made significant strides in trying to narrow that gap between regulatory and and reimbursement issues and really want to commend uh, Administrator Verma and Secretary Azar for their efforts to advance the uh, MSIT proposed rule that accelerated coverage for Uh, innovative medical technologies that receive the FDA-designated breakthrough designation. We have filed comments, um, and we're hopeful that that accelerated coverage portion of the rule can be finalized this administration um, so that that can be operational by uh, 2021, early 2021. There's other elements, the reasonable and necessary definition they think are complex and should be further comments should be uh, solicited before they finalize that. And then the third one is the just the ongoing uh, efforts on, on the FDA to keep that to be efficient, effective, and making sure that, uh, again, we are well-positioned for the MDUV-5 uh, negotiations. I think it is important to, to close, though, here and recognizing that, you know, it's not just the laws that change, but personnel can matter. And those in the industry who are around in 2008, 9, 10, remember that the laws regulating medical devices did not change, but many companies' experiences did. And part of that is through, you know, oversight from the hill or kind of just political pressure and that kind of uh, risk aversion set in and that just really stymied innovation products coming to the market. You had novel medical technologies in the U.S. in which the FDA was the 70th country in which it was approved. We've made tremendous strides over the last decade plus to make sure that the U.S. now and, and credit to Dr. Shearn is, you know, the goal is there that U.S. patients have first in the world access to innovative medical technologies and again, I think and, and while not compromising anything on the on the gold standard of FDA safety threshold, and our expectation is regardless of who the FDA commissioner is, they will want to erode that tremendous progress over the last 10 years and in fact want to build on it.
0: Well, that's a, that's a great point. I think a great one to finish on, although I don't think we're finished with this conversation. I think we'll probably have you back on the podcast once uh, once more, more dust is settled. Uh, thanks, Mark, for joining us today. Absolutely, Tom. Always a pleasure. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that first course with Mark Leahy, the president of MDMA. We'll keep an eye on Washington for you. Next course is with Spencer Stiles. Spencer's the group president of orthopedics at Stryker. We'll talk about Wright Medical. We'll talk about the Mako surgical system. But before we begin this conversation, I want to remind you that we have our Device Talks Tuesday speaker series. It's happening at 2 p.m. this coming Tuesday because of the holiday. 2 p.m. I'll be cu- talking with uh, Wynn Thurlow of the MedTech Association, Michelle Janis, and Adam Sobowski both of Master Control. The topic is manufacturing flexibility, the technology you need to navigate these changing environments in manufacturing. It's going to be a great conversation. No PowerPoints, all talk, great way to wind up or coast through your holiday week. So go to devicetalks.com to register. Now let's begin this conversation with Spencer Stiles of Striker. Spencer Stiles, welcome to the podcast.
5: Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me today
0: good to talk about uh, about a successful deal in medtech. Uh, but first, I want to learn a little bit about yourself. I went on your LinkedIn profile. I see that you graduated college or so in the late 90s. You joined Stryker in the late 90s. So are you a Stryker lifer guy?
5: Yes, I am. I'm a, a striker-lifer person, uh, which has been a pretty unique experience, but as we've grown, so have my opportunities. So I've moved in a variety of different parts of striker, worked in a variety of different divisions, uh, started in our endoscopy business, worked in our communications business, which is actually infrastructure in the operating room okay. when we use the word communications. Uh, yeah, a little different than mark- marketing communications. Uh, so I did that for a while, spent some time in, in our spine business, and in our instruments business, which is a, a holding business a uh, company of businesses that we have, ran a different part of our neuro businesses for a while. And now I lead our orthopedics and spine
0: set of businesses. What led you to join Stryker back in the day? What was the opportunity?
5: Yeah, if you recall in the late 90s, uh, the market was robust and so was the job market. And and so I had a lot of unique opportunities. I, I remember uh, interviewing early days with Stryker and being fascinated by this opportunity to, to step into healthcare and really make a difference around work. Mm that's sort of mission driven, that it's an opportunity to do good in the world. And, and that's definitely matured now uh, 22 plus years with the company where it's really one of the reasons I love what I do and why I wanna stay in this segment and sector for the rest of my career uh, is the opportunity to serve and act ultimately make an impact with patients' lives. And even we live behind our mission together with our customers, we're driven to make healthcare better. You know, We get to wake up every day with that unique responsibility and uh, I feel very privileged. So I, I love being in this space and think it's a, a really special area to come to work every day.
0: That's great. Well, I know you don't have a great deal of time today. So there's two things I want to talk with you about primarily. Number one is the, the, the most recent news, the, the acquisition of Right. Now, you became the head of Ortho last August, if I recall, and then the Right deal was in November. Was this uh, something that you had envisioned? Was it already in place when you kind of came on board
5: Yeah, so we we remain pretty acquisitive at Stryker. And so we're constantly assessing companies, opportunities, segments to to continue to build. And one of our key strategies is driving category leadership. We want to be number one in the spaces we play. And obviously we've known Wright for years and and actually have been uh, tracking their progress, have been impressed. You know, they've been acquisitive as well. And the opportunity worked out where there was a fluctuation in the market uh, and we were able to start engaging talks. And eventually we we uh, announced the signing. Now it's a little longer sign to close than most deals we've done. Took roughly a year to get through the variety of regulatory requirements across the world. But we closed last week and are really excited about the company, the people, the products, the customers, and where we can take the collective business.
0: Where is the opportunity in your eyes for for extremities and for Striker expanding on extremities?
5: Yeah, so this will live inside our trauma and extremities business. And so one of the things it does is give us this category leadership in a variety of positions. It immediately catapults us to the number one position in upper extremities, shoulder arthroplasty, Mm -hmm. and the combined portfolios of Stryker and now what was right, putting that together really puts us out in front of our competition and ultimately allows us really to take care of customers in a very unique way, not only the implant, but the surrounding enabling technology. They have a best-in-class solution there, an auto-segment device called Blueprint, where you can pre-plan the entire case. You can go in with the knowledge and know, and the surgeon can actually make sure they know exactly where that implant's going to go. And that really differentiates that particular implant then uh, and gives that surgeon confidence in that procedure itself. So really excited in that upper realm. The next is what we're calling foot and ankle. So lower extremities, we're calling it our foot and ankle business. And we've catapulted to the number one share position there too. We've combined two big organizations together uh, and really gives us scale and differentiation like nothing else in the marketplace. And we can serve all of our podiatry customers, all of our surgeon customers, uh, and are really excited about the growth potential in that realm as well. That's led us to sort of another benefit, and we believe in specialized businesses. So this lives inside our trauma and extremities where we have now our specialized trauma business, and that organization, our specialized upper extremity business and our specialized foot and ankle business. And we believe the closer we are to the customer, when we think of sales, marketing, research and development, and even m we can provide better service, come up with better innovation and ultimately take better care of the patients. So it's been a pretty unique opportunity where this is core, it's inside Striker. we're a leader in orthopedics. We can bring that in our trauma and extremities and build upon the success they've had and further accelerate our growth and market position.
0: How, how different are, are the businesses, the extremities businesses, uh, the trauma businesses versus the large joint business? They're all within ortho, but but how are they in terms of the, how, how sales are made, how revenues are collected? How alike are they? How different are they?
5: The transactional element is generally the same. Uh, implant, sensitivities, close connections to the customer, almost an intimate relationship with that customer, really trusting that the product's going to be there in the service. However, uh, they are different specialists. You know, there are people that wake up every day and they only do foot and ankle surgery. There's others now in upper extremity that all they want to do is shoulders. Uh, they're obviously they're now people just specializing and doing more knees. So having that specialization creates an advantage. And then there are nuances in the portfolios themselves, some of the technology, some of the capabilities, some of the outcomes. Uh, biologics plays into some of this space. Uh, in bigger capacities in some versus others. It's a big deal in foot and ankle, uh, maybe not as big in some of the other markets right now. So there are some nuances, but I'd say the general transaction is the same, but we can leverage that, obviously bring value to it and still get the result of specialization and
4: growth.
0: What is the the role of the sales rep in in shoulder and other extremities? Are they Have they traditionally been in the room? Is it that sort of a uh, relationship or is it more just drop off the implants and go?
5: Now, yes, it is inside the operating room, uh, educating, staying close to that customer, making sure they have the right inventory in place, and at times when appropriate, guiding and helping the surgeon make sure that that case goes outstanding. It's interesting, in this model, part of the reason we love Right is we actually gain all that sales footprint and all those sales professionals. And one of our goals in the integration is to keep every single sales rep. So we're not eliminating any sales reps. We don't want any sales reps to go away. As a matter of fact, we want to add the sales reps and keep them. And there's plenty of business and that connectivity with the customer out there that allows us to take advantage of that footprint.
0: You anticipated my question. How does uh, how are you dealing with the challenges presented by COVID? We're, we're reading, I'm writing a lot more, talking to a lot more people about remote OR connections, about sales reps who can't get in the OR. Have you been impacted by that?
5: You know, it's interesting, Tom. Early in the pandemic, we experimented more, ran some pilots, partnered with some customers to do some remote proctoring, some remote case coverage. Interesting, foot and ankle, we've actually done some total ankle replacements remotely. However, I would argue that the sales reps value actually increased in the pandemic, in our belief. Our customers who have shortage of staff, sometimes it's newer staff, doesn't know where all the inventory is. There's a demand then that they need our experts who know where products are, who can be there to cover, who can help. Uh, make sure the right inventory is in the right place, that can guide a new staff member through a procedure. Our sales professionals have actually seen greater demand on their time, and maybe even their value has increased with a lot of the healthcare facilities, especially inside the United States. I think it varies by some of the markets across the world, but we've seen greater demand. So we've tried some of these virtual settings, and and they are effective and can be. However, uh, we've actually seen from our customers by request this increase in demand of their time, which I think shows the value of a a medical device sales professional that's well-educated and understands the products and the, and the uh, surgical flow in their facilities.
0: Do you have those same requests on the, on the large joint side as well?
5: Same requests on the large joint. Yes. Yep. That's actually increased as well. And we see a a similar trend with large joints. Now some of our larger capital businesses, if we think holistically in our med surge and med tech, maybe some of those don't have the same demands or intimacy with the customer. So they're figuring out ways to connect now more in a virtual environment, more Zoom calls, more things like this. Uh, but those that play a critical role inside the operating room, that that value is increasing. and the band has gone up.
0: Let's talk a little more about large joint, uh, Mako specifically. You've been able to, you placed your one thousand system recently, your report, your quarterly reports showed strong growth, a lot of optimism, all of this while hospitals are having trouble bringing in revenue and paying their bills. It would seem to be that- yeah. The, the, the financial pressure, plus the fact that perhaps fewer people will be seeking elective surgery, especially with the COVID surging again, uh, how have you been able to maintain growth with MAKO?
5: Yeah, MAKO has been really exciting. It is a, a differentiator in the marketplace. And really now we're seeing that it's the standard of care of how to deliver arthroplasty for knee and now hip as, as well. And that's pretty powerful and something that even during the pandemic, we saw accelerate uh, now we might have been more aggressive in terms of our willingness to help hospitals with their financial requirements and arrangements, and figure out ways to make sure they can still have access to that technology. But it's a premium technology that offers a premium result, and so hospitals were still saying we want that, and we're still willing to make sure that we prioritize this so we can have these makos available. Now, when we think about the future, we expect that standard of care to continue. We have great demand uh all the way through the end of the year strong outlook for 2021 uh with all that being said your question around the pandemic these are uncertain times as we just look at general utilization right now and as you probably are hearing by the day we're hearing about slowdowns in certain geographies full cancellations of elective surgeries so all those things do play a a role in sort of trying to make sense of what the environment looks like and i think it's going to be up and down and a bit rocky until we have a broad-based vaccination out in the marketplace. Let's
0: circle back on the, on the financial arrangements you've been able to make and your, your flexibility. What does that look like? Are you looking more at a subscription model, a, a robotic-as-a-service model? How, how are you helping hospitals afford to have the MAKO system?
5: I think one of our advantages at Stryker we offer a variety of different solutions depending on what that customer needs or their situation. Some of those are tied to utilization to make sure that they can bring utilization along for that particular technology. Uh, There are others, though, that it's a full-on capital. Some, it's a rental program. It really depends on what the needs are. Striker's in a unique position. We have an entire internal financial arm. We have Flex Financial. We're able to go out and offer creative financing solutions to our customers. Uh, And that really gives us an advantage in making sure we can meet their financial needs as well as capitalize on getting the technology they want in their hospital.
0: Just so I understand, have you always had that in place for hospitals?
5: We have uh, more so in our med surge businesses, and that has more history of large capital and large device placements, uh, rental programs, utilization programs. We carried a lot of those learnings over to our joint replacement business where we have MAKO, and we built up that competency there as well. And so I think it's one of the advantages of our diverse portfolio at Striker.
0: And do you see that on the on the ortho side, on the MAKO side, do you see this being a permanent adjustment? or one that you're just allowing for now during the, the, the pandemic?
5: I think we'll be flexible within the market. And if the market has demands for other ways to finance and figure out ways to get product in the market, we'll adapt to those. And we'll always have those type of solutions. Uh, however, at the same time, we'll be mindful of the market and any changes that might occur to make sure we're adapting appropriately.
0: So just so I understand your your business, is it, is it most important to just t- to get the systems in the hospital? Obviously not at any cost, but uh, you're really interested in selling implants and the robots are how you do that.
5: Well, yeah, I, I tell you, Tom, one of the interesting things about Mako, you have to have surgeon championship. You have to have surgeons that are willing to say, I'm gonna move my business. It might be a competitive surgeon or a existing striker surgeon, and they need a champion, and they may be able to believe in that technology. Uh, So we start there. And once we get that, and I think that's one of the things that differentiates us and some of the other robots out there, you have to have that buy-in. And every Mako that gets placed across the world, we make sure we have that championship. The last thing in the world you want is a robot sitting there in the corner you know, collecting dust or have x-ray gowns draped over the side. So this is really important to us. So we start with that. Then we move into the hospital situation in terms of financials and say, what makes sense for you? And we work with administration, we work with the segment coordinators to say, what is the best solution for your particular facility? And then we go from there and, and we've had pretty good success.
0: Great. Final question. I know you just just close on right but I probably won't get to talk to you for a little while. What is the next area of interest to you? Is it sports medicine, biomaterial, but where does where does Stryker need to be number one next?
5: Yeah, I, I'll take your question in a little different way. Uh, we've recently put some more horsepower behind our digital robotics and enabling technology work and activity. We think the ability to collect information and data and utilize that for the advantage of the patient and our customers is really the opportunity to transform how we do business. So we're putting more horsepower behind that. Obviously, we have an advantage and, you know, I think we're out in front in robotics and orthopedics. Uh, We have a really unique portfolio across Striker where we're collecting a lot of information and an ecosystem that we can leverage. So that's where we're putting a lot of our energy right now to make sure we can meet those customer needs.
0: Excellent. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, Best of luck with the acquisition being closed and I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for joining us on the podcast.
5: Thanks so much, Tom. Stay safe and we uh, look forward to seeing you again soon.
0: And we're back. We're here with Chris Newmarker, executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device, delivering his critical Newmarker's Newsmakers. I believe, Chris, we are on Number Trace.
1: A Number Trace. A Number Trace is uh, is our uh, twenty largest medical device companies in the world. That's our you know big story that we've put on medical design outsourcing and Mass Device off our off our Big One Hundred. So, just you know, if you want to like make a guess, uh, which companies are in that top twenty and start reading through and you can find out interesting information such as employee head counts, R&D spend, got updates on, you know, where, how all this company has been faring amid, uh, amid the pandemic. So it's just a really, really good roundup about how things are going.
0: And the big 20 in Spanish would be the Grande Viente, I believe. Mm, Grande Viente. That (laughs) sounds great. (laughs) And number two on the New Markets Newsmakers list.
1: Oh, number uh, number two on the list is uh, Boston Scientific. Um, I issued a voluntary recall of uh, their uh, Lotus Edge uh, Taver and uh, immediately retired the Lotus Pro program. So I mean, this is this is huge news in the Taver space. I mean, in the in the U.S., it's uh, you know Edwards is the dominant player. You know, Medtronic's been trying to uh, compete against them, and Lotus was Boston size, big thing to come in and compete as well. And uh, yeah, they're 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 given up on it you know they uh they said the valve itself was good but you know they uh you know they cited uh complexities re- related to the uh, delivery system for it and yeah you know, they're just uh they they've stopped it and you know and at the same time uh they're now you know they're uh they're now going to be focusing on uh you know, their accurate NEO2 aortic valve system. But in the meantime, um, you know, there's an uh, analyst at Jefferies saying that, uh, you know, that Edwards is going to get some extra growth in their TAVR business over the, the next few years.
0: Yeah. Separately, I spoke with Sean Hooley, of course. He's the assistant editor at Mass Device. He wrote this article and our number one article regarding the Boston Scientific story. He said there were some reports about layoffs of over 100 people, but he had a conversation with a spokesperson or had reached a spokesperson at Boston Scientific who said the number was a little fluid. They were still trying to figure out if people could be be reassigned. All right, Chris, what is number one on the Newmarkers Newsmakers list? Well, number one uh, was that
1: uh, Johnson and Johnson shared details on their uh, surgical robotic platform, and uh, in, uh, including a name. any uh, guesses, do you think they went with another famous poet, artist, or writer from past centuries? I know we had, uh, you know, I like got like Intuitives had the Da Vinci robot, Medtronic's working
0: on the Hugo robot. Well, I don't, I don't need to guess, Chris. See what Sean had to say about the news.
6: Yeah. So they're, they're really uh, excited about just all their kind of, they're calling it the digital surgery uh, offerings um, with the Monarch that they acquired from RS Health. But the big, the big one is something that's kind of been touted for a while. And that's their surgical robotic platform um, that they had. There were murmurs of uh, something going on this summer. Uh, it seemed like COVID kind of pushed Plans back, but they officially unveiled it and the name uh, Otava, which uh, they said is Italian for "an octave above," which they believe is kind of symbolic of how they hope that their platform will be above above the the big hitters in uh, Medtronic and Intuitive Surgical, obviously with the uh, Da Vinci and the Hugo machines. So basically they say that their design is, has six arms, uh, which provides more control and flexibility. The arms are integrated into the operating table and the platform has what they call a zero footprint design, which enables patient access and increases space in the operating room while improving workflow. Basically you know, this is kind of their major surgical robotic play to try and get into the space. They say that they're not obviously first to market, but they're trying to kind of disrupt it and it's a high growth area. So they're they're excited about the development. They said that they're beginning verification and validation processes in 2021. And then they'll begin enrollment for clinical trials in 2022, if all goes to plan.
0: That was great, Sean Hooley. Thanks. All right. Well, great job, Chris, once again, with the New Markers Newsmakers list. And now let's hear from Jennifer Free. Jennifer is the CEO of Explorer Surgical. She'll be uh, providing her last installment of the two-minute detox. And then we'll hear from Art Collins. Art, of course, as we mentioned at the top, is the former chairman and CEO of Medtronic. He's also a senior advisor to Explorer. So we'll talk about Explorer at the end of the interview, but first we'll talk a bit about Art's career and his thoughts on leadership. Let's listen. Hey, folks, this is the fourth and final installment of Explorer Surgical's two-minute detox series. It's been great to have Jennifer Freed on the show. Today, Jennifer talks a bit more about Explorer's offering and how it differs from others in the market. We also hit upon some news released this week. Let's listen.
7: Explorer is a mobile-first application, so you don't have to have specific hardware in the room to run our remote support software. You can access it on any phone, tablet, existing screens in the room. We can also integrate with external cameras as well, but we wanted our tool to be available right away. So if a rep said, I can't get into a room, I'm here in the hospital right now, but they're not letting me in. We wanted that rep to be able to text the tech, say, download this app, and I'm going to be there in a HIPAA compliant way in two minutes. In addition, we really go beyond putting a camera and eyes in the room. And that comes down to our digital workflow offering and being able to have those step-by-step best practices for team members to be able to access and interact with at any time, whether the rep is there in person, they're virtually or not available at all. And to facilitate interoperative data So we know that the OR has really been a black box that nobody has cracked open in terms of what's actually happening in there. And by having a tool that's being used to facilitate these best practices and data, we're so excited to start to really capture this and harness it and bring that value to our med device customers that are so often in the dark around what's actually happening. And so for us, it's really that robustness, that comprehensiveness of our platform, as well as the ability to get up and running so easily because everybody has a phone or tablet in the room. So we can solve your problem right now.
0: And Jen, I know you had some news this week. Can you bring us up to date on your new feature?
7: We've updated our annotation and telestration capabilities, which is really exciting. So for a team member for the company that's remote, you have a virtual laser pointer. You can call out different things. You can circle what you're seeing on the imaging And you also have the ability to save a screenshot to our compliant database to look at later.
0: Thanks, Explorer Surgical and Jennifer Freed for sharing your story through the 2-Minute Detox sponsored content features. If you'd like to hear more of these, continue listening to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to be on one, reach out to me. I am at tsalemi at wtwhmedia.com, and I'll make sure you get in touch with the right person. And for more information, go to explorersurgical.com. Well, Art Collins, welcome to the podcast.
2: Tom, it's good to be with you.
0: I'm excited to talk about you and your involvement with Explorer Surgical. Uh, let's talk about the you part first. I haven't had a chance to connect with you before, so uh, I wanted to just hear a little bit about your, your MedTech story. I know your, your first MedTech job was at, uh, uh, was at Abbott. At the time, you from my reading, you had opportunities at GE, Quaker Oats, and some other sizable companies. Why, uh, why Abbott and, and why MedTech? What brought you into the sector?
2: Well, Tom, I uh, I made the decision when I was at Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, the consulting firm that I had been at for about four years, and while that was a um, a great postdoc in business education, I eventually wanted to get into a company that hopefully someday I could have an opportunity to run or at least have a senior position in. Mm -hmm. Uh, My father and, and my mother are both from the medical industry. My father. And both deceased, my father was a a physician, an ophthalmologist, um, actually performing eye surgery back when they did it with um, scalpels rather than lasers. And my mother was a registered nurse. So I looked at a number of different opportunities coming out of Booz Allen, and I ultimately chose Abbott Laboratories, and specifically the diagnostic business uh, after I spent about a year and a half as the manager of corporate uh, planning and development much of which uh, was based on the technology and the, the great uh, opportunity for growth.
0: And and I had read that I think you had considered pre-med at some point, but your father had advised you that unless you're really passionate for it, medicine might not be the best path. Did he sense something in you that, that wasn't a priority of yours being, being a physician?
2: No, I, I don't think he sensed um, any issue with um, with me at that time as it related to potentially being a doctor. He just wanted to give me fair warning mm-hmm. that uh, while he loved the the profession, it is um, it is a profession that you really need a calling for uh, to be truly happy within. And uh, he said, whatever you do, follow your calling. And my calling ended up to be business rather than medicine. But I was very fortunate both at Abbott and later at Medtronic where I could meld the two together.
0: What is it about leadership that, that compels you so much? Is it is it being part of a team? Is it getting something done? What is what is the, the number one quality, the number one thing that brings you joy from the action of being a leader?
2: Well, I, I, I think all of the above. Um, and uh, you've done a little background uh, search on me. And you know, when I was growing up, organized sports were very in- Important to me, and and I was fortunate to be captain of some of those sporting teams, and I I very much enjoyed being part of a team uh, rather than an individual contributor, which many physicians are. Hmm. Um, as to the the most exciting or the aspect of leadership that gives me the, the most joy, I think it is building a team and then uh, leading a team and watching that team accomplish hopefully more than they thought they were capable of. Uh, And that can take place in a number of different industries. I just happened to choose healthcare.
0: And just finally, on the leadership thread, uh, I read recently you you posted an article on LinkedIn, a a column uh, centered around uh, character, centered around the the, the statement, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, and focusing on really what it meant to you, which was uh, leadership and character. And you pointed to many presidents who who demonstrated that. I'm, I'm asking this question at a time where I feel like I'm always... Stepping near or through a minefield. Uh, I don't want to create problems for anyone, but in this, this is an unusual time in our country where we're sort of in a in a position of leadership transfer. One that's uh, one that I haven't seen as rocky as this. Curious to what your feelings are uh, about today and about the state of leadership today at that level.
2: Well, I, I think Tom, you um, you understate. Um, you, it's hard to understate, but I think I think you do the situation we're in. Um, Never in my lifetime have I ever seen anything like what we are going through today with um, uh, hopefully a, an ultimate transfer of power between President Trump and President-elect Biden. Uh, this, I think, is, is unfortunate for the country that it's taking this long. And, um, but I am hopeful that as we finally get to the end of this road, whenever that is, if it's mid-January or before, Uh, that we will put a lot of the divisiveness that we've seen not only in recent months but over the last four years behind us and get on with the very important work of healing or at least trying to heal um, the divides within our country and uh, and restore the reputation of the United States around the world. Um, I'm hopeful of that and I am confident that we have the the capability to do that. And uh, time will tell on how quickly it takes. And it, this is all done with the backdrop of COVID-19, which is the largest uh, healthcare crisis and um, the largest uh, economic crisis that, that I've seen during my lifetime. Uh, and that article that I wrote was was written um, really at a time when COVID-19 was was just starting to expand in the United States I think I, I'd originally written it back in March and then and then reposted it but it's a it's a it's a very difficult time for the United States and for many countries around the world when I think leadership is at a premium and uh, as I said in the article I think you you can study a lot of aspects of leadership but it all comes back to character-
0: mm-hmm. oh thank you for that I agree with much of what you're saying if not all. Uh, Going back to to MedTech, you went from Abbott to Medtronic precisely because you saw a path toward leadership. Very quickly, I was wondering if you could just give me an assessment of your your time there. You did ultimately become chairman and CEO. What was uh, your experience like leading probably the highest profile company in our industry?
2: Well, I had come from a very uh, rapidly growing segment of Abbott Laboratories. That was the uh, diagnostic business, which was Abbott's uh, fastest growing uh, business expanding in both revenues and profits, well in excess of a uh, compound growth rate of 15% a year, highly technical product, um, uh, global in nature. And I saw Medtronic at the time that I joined, which was back in 1992 uh, at a somewhat similar, in a somewhat similar position that I saw Abbott Diagnostics when I when I joined that business. A great potential, continuing to expand globally, and uh, with great opportunities f- for the technology to be either expanded or at least uh, further penetrated within the the, the healthcare environment. Uh, I joined Medtronic as the uh, executive vice president and president of Medtronic International, and that meant I had responsibility for all the operations outside the United States. And after A year and a half in that position, I moved into the president chief operating officer position. And then that started what was a very successful, more than 15-year run, where we also expanded uh, revenues and uh, net earnings uh, on a compound growth rate in excess of 15%. Again, I come back to something we talked about earlier. What was as enjoyable as anything uh, in that experience was building a team that uh, was capable of charting the direction and then carrying out the steps that uh, were required to take advantage of that growth potential. How,
0: how do you evaluate your, your time uh, at Medtronic or Medtronic's performance while you were were CEO and president? Are you looking back? Are you satisfied with uh, with how things went?
2: Yeah, very, very much so. Uh, we, we not only continue to uh, grow the top and the bottom line, uh, Significantly, we expanded the product line both through organic growth and through a series of acquisitions. I think we positioned Medtronic well for the future. And one of the statistics I, I started to track when I became ch- chief executive officer I, I said, you know, people aren't going to remember uh, one penny of earnings for sh- per share. Uh, from one quarter to another. not that That's not important, but they, they will remember how many patients that we touch and uh, how many lives that we significantly improve or actually save. So I started to track how frequently a Medtronic product either saved or significantly improved an individual's life. And I think when I started, it was probably in excess of 12, 14 seconds, then it got down to, you know, just a few seconds. And I, I think it is still an, uh, a uh, statistic that is currently tracked. That's a great metric.
0: And and I, and I read when you when you left Medtronic or, or, or at least left the CEO post and, and began taking – Board seats at other industries that you intentionally sought posts outside of med tech because you wanted to continue to to learn and grow. Number one, is that true? Number two, do you still consider yourself a med tech person and do you follow that industry closely?
2: Well, to your first question, yes, it is true. I um, I my criteria for for selecting a board position uh, was first of all that it not be in medical technology and for that matter not be in the medical field. I turned down some very attractive opportunities for large pharmaceutical and biotech companies. But I wanted to uh, be involved with other industries, partly because I think I had a lot to offer from my experience within medical technology, but also I wanted to continue to learn. And so the factors that were very important um, to me were to, if I could, go with an industry leader. And if you go back and look at the companies I joined, whether uh, they'd be uh, Cargill, the largest private company, um, was a leader in ag- agribusiness, U.S. Bancorp, without a doubt, the most um, successful and well-positioned large regional bank uh, with many total U.S. and, and worldwide uh, product lines. Boeing, the leader in uh, aerospace and defense, and uh, I can go through a few others. But that was important. The um, the makeup of the board, the personality of the board, the, the working relationship among board members was very important. And by the way, not not the easiest thing to assess before you get inside. And then finally, uh, I was uh, very interested in the CEO and uh, uh, and uh, who he or she was. And, and I guess the last point I would say is that I um, I wanted to be able to work for a company. Uh, that uh, had a product line and uh, that was doing good for people since that had been so critical for me in my my full-time work experience
0: how closely do you do you still track medtech and and i guess most specifically what are your thoughts if you have any to share on uh, on medtronic jeff martha has taken over as ceo he's kind of coming in the same trajectory you did he has been there a few years and and now he's introducing some uh, some significant changes or or the company is adopting some significant changes under his new tenure just are you close to that situation at all do you have any thoughts that uh, that you share
2: well i purposely try to not stay too close to Medtronic. I think ex-CEOs um, can many times cause more harm than good if they, uh, if they try to stay too close to the company they at one time ran or they, they attempt to meddle. And I, I purposely did not do that. Um, I, have, uh, I keep up and, and read what is written about Medtronic. I, I think Jeff, as I understand, is, is trying to make Medtronic, uh, in his words, a bit more nimble and, and more cost-effective. Uh, he's he's got a set of challenges now, as every uh, leader in medtech does uh, with COVID-19. He comes with a, a strong GE background, uh, as did uh, uh, his predecessor Omar. He's got good people in the organization, and I think very importantly, uh, he understands the the critical nature of Medtronic's mission, uh, which uh, really helps guide not only strategy, operating decisions, but it's the glue that binds. The wonderful employees of Medtronic together. So I wish him all the luck. And uh, like any new leader, he's going to put his own stamp on the company, and uh, and uh, we'll all have to wait and just watch how that plays out.
0: That's a really, really fascinating culture so now uh, how, now we're here to to talk about your work with Explorer Surgical. It's a company we've become familiar with uh, on the podcast and i've I've had the opportunity to work with Jennifer Free the CEO before and uh, always enjoyed that. How did you become involved with uh, with Explorer surgical?
2: well i I knew of Jennifer. I was asked to be a judge in the finalist of a, a a new venture competition at the Booth School of the University of Chicago, uh, and they have uh, a number of teams that they put together each year, and they uh, they come up with new business ideas and and they go through a series of uh, initial competitions, and it all culminates in a in a final competition. And Jennifer was one of those that did very well at Booth, and um, I attract her her efforts at Explore. And she had actually called me and asked if she could have coffee and talk about uh, what she was doing and see if I had any ideas. And that conversation ultimately led to uh, my agreeing to be a senior advisor to explore. uh, I'm at a point now in my career where I'm not particularly interested in taking on a lot of new, very large public board seats. And I find it much more interesting now to work with earlier stage companies uh, that uh, have uh, first-time CEOs that are navigating many of the same issues that I navigated uh, in my earlier days in running businesses, explore. I found very interesting uh, m- much of what they are doing now. We were very interested in that at Medtronic, and I think it's particularly important now in this COVID-19 environment, uh, where if you can if you can provide a set of services and capabilities within the uh, operating room without having company representatives there and bring many times expertise that you you just couldn't completely staff in an operating room, but bring it in remotely, uh, I think think we're going to find that that is going to play an even more important part going forward.
0: Where do you see this trend going? People like me, the media, we we look at two or three dots and we connect them and we and we make these uh, grand statements that this is the future of this or that. And I think we're we're I, I know I'm contributing to that with the remote sales rep uh, model that Explorer and others are in. But but where do you see us going in this regard? Is this is Explorer and others in this space truly onto something that will be a Paradigm shift in how uh, surgeons and I know I know Explorers offerings are more than just the remote connections. So, but do do you see the remote connection, the remote connecting between sales reps and surgeons, being an important part of their relationship going forward, or is it just a blip because of COVID?
2: No, I, I don't think it's a blip. Uh, I think COVID has actually um, accelerated uh, much of the need for what Explore and some other companies are providing. Um, and I think I think there are many applications. Uh, one obviously is is um, remotely uh, providing support uh, to an, uh, a surgery that is ongoing in a surgical suite. Some of that uh, remote capability can be used in proctoring or training. Some of it can be used in inventory control systems. For example, as you know, uh, one of Medtronic's very large businesses is the spinal surgery business. I've scrubbed into every single uh, surgery that Medtronic provided products to. So I've I've watched a number of spinal surgeries and normally a rep would come in with a very large kit of not only products that ultimately could be used in the spinal surgery and and actually remain in the patient, uh, but also tools and uh, keeping track of those uh, both from an inventory control and a billing standpoint, as well as a safety standpoint is is very important. so I think that we're scratching the surface on this. I think there clearly is is a lot more to be done in terms of implementing uh, many of these uh, remote capabilities into everyday practice. but uh, i I think that this new normal that everyone is trying to Figure out and adjust to that, that came about because of the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, is is going to continue with us going forward, uh, and I <clears throat> I had two major requirements that I always uh, told our R and D en- engineers and scientists uh, as they were developing products and our marketing people, if if they were going to get these projects funded, I said number one, what we come up with has to provide better outcomes better patient outcomes. And number two, it has to be more cost effective than what is currently available. And both of those requirements need to be satisfied for the product to really go. And I think that as I look at at what Jennifer and her team have developed and are continuing to refine and advance, I think the Explorer system has the ability to provide an answer of yes to both those questions.
0: That's great. Final question and, and a point, I guess. Question is, you mentioned Jennifer reached out to you for to, see, to have a cup of coffee to see if you'd be available. Uh, what sort of advice do you give to young CEOs, first-time CEOs, to sort of build that network of mentors? And, and how different is it being the leader of a, of a startup like Explorer? versus the, the companies, uh, Medtronic or Rabbit, where you were a senior leader yourself. what Are, are there similarities? I imagine there are many differences. Are there similarities?
2: Well, y- yes, there are, there are similarities. Uh, clearly, you've got to assemble a team. You can't do everything yourself. And Jennifer is spending a fair amount of her time putting that team together. Uh, you've got to ensure that the product that you have really does meet those two major requirements that I previously talked about. I think particularly when you are in a startup mode, it's important that you focus. I've seen too many startups fail because they tried to do too many things at once. And so I've been a great proponent of of get a product to market, make sure that you understand the dynamics of that marketplace that you're meeting customer needs, uh, but if you try to do too much, uh, you'll end up doing nothing. Now, some of the differences, many early stage or startup companies have to face the reality of one of the most precious resources that they, they need is cash. And uh, when I joined Abbott and when I joined Medtronic, we didn't have a question of, of do we have to go out and fundraise? Uh, we were um cash flow positive significantly cash flow positive we were generating large revenue growth large profit growth so uh, in addition to everything else jennifer is doing uh she's got to be clearly in a mode of making sure that the company is is raising adequate capital to be able to not only meet today's needs but also the needs in the future and then uh for someone like jennifer um uh, she's got to maintain balance in her life, and uh, you know this this life balance um, uh, equation is something that's very important, not only for her but for her her employees. And you know you you put on top of that all the stress that comes from COVID and and employees working remotely and uh, all the other considerations that you have as we deal with this pandemic. And and um, it, it's not an easy task, but I am a big fan of Jennifer's and I think she's doing a great job.
0: Well, this has been a, a really terrific conversation. I appreciate uh, your insights on the industry and uh, on leadership. And uh, thank you for, for joining us on the podcast. Tom, it's been a real pleasure. Well, Chris Newmarker, I am stuffed after that podcast episode. I think I'm going to need to take a nap. But first, we should tell people how they can find us on social media. Where are you located out there on that big wide world, Chris? And you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker.
1: And you can find me on Twitter at Newmarker. Always happy to chat with people.
0: And I am on LinkedIn as well, Tom Salemi. You can find me on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom. Sean Hooley is on LinkedIn as well and always eager to engage with the MedTech community. So please connect with him there. And he is also on Twitter. At at Sean Hooley, that's W-H-O-O-L-E-Y W-T-W-H. That's Sean Hooley at Sean Hooley W-T-W-H. Connect with him there as well. Sean's writing some great stuff for Mass Device, as is our entire editorial team. So uh great person to connect with. Our people are writing machines. Yes, they are, Chris Newmarker. All right, folks, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Our plan is to take next week off for the Thanksgiving holiday. I'm leaving the door just slightly ajar for a special episode to come out. But uh, more than likely, you'll be hearing us from us the week after with a potentially huge interview. So uh, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, What on earth are you waiting for? If you subscribe, you'll get these podcasts first. You'll get them sent right to you. It's so easy. Just go on your podcast apps, find the subscribe button, push it. There's no cost. There's no fuss. It's pretty easy. So just subscribe. And if you don't mind, please share these podcasts with your friends and colleagues on social media. When you do so, connect to Chris Newmarker. And myself put us there in the post. Put Sean in there. Put Daniel Kirsch. Put put Nancy Crotty, The entire mass device team. We want to be part of your med tech conversations. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks again, folks. If we do not speak to you before next Thursday, have a very happy and safe Thanksgiving. Everything anything to add, Chris Newmarker? Oh, no, 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 no.